I, I'm, uh, I'm in Chagall Guevara. Maybe you've heard of us. Uh, hey, this is Steve Taylor. You're listening to the True Tunes podcast with our good friend John Thompson. Hey, y'all. It's Mike Mead. Hi, friends. Dave Perkins. Again? Hi, this is Steve Taylor. <laughs> Take two. Hello. Hi, this is Lynn Nichols, and welcome to True Tunes. Thirty years ago, the answer seemed clear. If a killer band comprised of seasoned players, tried and tested in the fires and trenches of underground and mainstream rock, entered the darkened forest of major label music, and slayed the proverbial dragon by making an acclaimed album full of hooky, literate, thought-provoking songs that kicked as much gray matter as it did ass, but the right corporate elements were not paying attention and doing their jobs, would anyone hear the sound as said dragon came crashing to the forest floor? Additionally, was it possible for artists with spiritual, existential, even gospel perspectives to extricate themselves from the evangelical industrial complex and engage the wider cultural conversation? Or was the gravitational pull of the mainstream CCM marketing apparatus just too strong to break? Thompson, and welcome to the True Tunes Podcast. Chagall Guevara, the ostentatious Nashville band made up of members from Philadelphia, Colorado, New York, and elsewhere, may have proved a few things with their spectacular self-titled debut LP and their rousing, rare live shows, as well as their stunning commercial failure and abrupt end, namely that revolutionary art, as the band's borderline ridiculous moniker suggested they were determined to deliver, was simply not on the menu for an industry that evolved to deliver products to religiously oriented audiences.
members of the band were a virtual who's who of unknown legends. Dave Perkins cut his teeth in the Philadelphia area and went on to either play guitar, write songs, or produce albums for artists like Jerry Jeff Walker, Carol King, Guy Clark, Papa John Creech, Over the Rhine, and even Ray Charles. Guitarist Lynn Nichols had been a member of Phil Keggy's band in the late 70s alongside Phil Madeira before finding work as a visionary, if not frequently frustrated, A&R rep and label manager in the growing gospel rock underground. And then there was Steve Taylor, the wiry, fearless frontman who found a slot somewhere between Elvis Costello, Graham Parker, David Byrne, and Mick Jones on the far left edge of the Christian rock world. Joined by Perkins drummer Mike the Mosquito Mead, who also played with Keggy, Rick Kua, and many others, and bassist Wade Janes, the unit functioned as a true band, feeling and sounding distinct from any of the members' previous projects. Perkins and Nichols crafted a bulwark of tube-driven guitar muscle, often layering jangly Brit-pop Rickenbacker shimmer atop blue-collar slabs of Gibson granite. There were riffs for days and zero filler. Mead's drums were thunderous and musical at the same time, providing a tether for the careening stringed madness and a through-line for Taylor's frenetic energy to play off. And Taylor, who had long thrived as a solo artist, lavished in the warmth and grit of a band that was his equal. Even his vocals, often subtly supported by Perkins' gruff baritone, found new range and power. This was power pop for the grunge era. It was Costello via The Clash via 120 Minutes. It was tape and tubes and timbre, and it was as smart as it was smashing. These were songs of holy discontent, prophetic warning, and hysterically bemused lament. None of the members of Chagall Guevara ever intended to wind up making music for exclusively Christian audiences. Indeed, it seemed the only way out was through a complete break, and with Chagall Guevara, they seemed to find their Shawshank Tunnel. A deal with MCA offered access to normal distribution channels, real rock radio, standard touring environs, and all the rest. All they had to do was deliver. When they dropped that eponymous LP in 1991, it was clear to all that they had done just that. Rolling Stone magazine agreed. Their review raved, not since The Clash has a group so effectively turned militant discontent into passionate rock and roll and still maintained a sense of perspective and humor, however black. 
Other critics were similarly enthusiastic, but, and I think even if you are not already a fan of the band, you know where I'm going here, it all fell apart, and spectacularly so. Now, 30 years later, Chagall Guevara is back. What started as a Kickstarter campaign to mix, master, and release a long-lost analog recording of one of their concerts from 91 wound up garnering support from over 2,000 people and raising over $144,000. This spectacular success included promises that the band would complete a new album, Halcyon Days that completed song ideas from the 90s and added new compositions and promised a single live concert reunion, which happened just a few weeks ago at the historic Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. So, again, even if you're not already a fan, Hopefully, you find the story of a failed band from 30 years ago generating this kind of excitement at least somewhat compelling. What is it about this group that has people so excited? What might their failure and ultimate success have to say about what we all long for from art? And knowing that there are probably other young artists out there working hard to craft compelling, thoughtful, culturally vibrant music as if their lives depended on it, what might we be able to learn from this story to help tomorrow's revolutionary artists? And what about a six-year-old kid watching this band at Cornerstone 91 and having his little mind blown to the point that all these years later they credit him as being the one who kept the flame burning when the band seemed to wish we'd all just stop talking about it? We found that kid and got his thoughts too. And a bit later in the show, we'll crank up the True Tunes jukebox, which we have loaded up with records from another of Steve Taylor's fabulous, glorious, perfect failures, Squint Entertainment. Thank God some guys just don't know when to quit. I was thrilled to get to sit down with Steve, Mike Mead, Dave Perkins, Lynn Nichols, and a small studio audience this time in the band's secret rehearsal lair in Nashville just a couple days before they took the stage at the Ryman. We'll take you there right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. It really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me. And I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. Thanks.
depending on when you hear this episode, you may still have time to be eligible to win a very cool wooden 7-inch record box from the 77s, courtesy of our own Bruce Brown. This box was a high-level Kickstarter reward when Low Fidelity Records did their amazing reissue of the 7 and 7 is More Miserable LP, and it will come with two super-rare 77s-related 7-inch records, plus a copy of my band, The Wayside's 7-inch record from over a decade ago, and a bunch of cool True Tunes swag, including one of our brand-new enamel pins. There are some things you need to do to be eligible to win, like join the email list, follow our Spotify mix, and so on, but all Patreon backers are automatically entered twice. We'll hold the drawing at the end of July, so check out the show notes page for the details to enter and get in on this. And if you missed out, this is the kind of stuff we do to make it worth being connected with us. So get connected now and you'll be all set for the next giveaway. As I mentioned, it's been over 30 years since Chagall Guevara released their one and only album. Since then, Steve Taylor went back to solo recording for a couple of albums and then started Squint Entertainment, which we will talk about a bit later. He also became a celebrated filmmaker and has been leading the film department at Lipscomb University in Nashville for several years. He put together another band, The Perfect Foil, and an alternate version of that band that includes our friend Daniel Smith of Danielson as well. You can find more with Steve on the seventh episode of this podcast from back in early 2020, by the way. Dave Perkins continued as a solo artist, and he and guitarist Lynn Nichols created an industrial project called Pacifist years ago. Perkins eventually earned his PhD and became a professor at Vanderbilt's Divinity School. Lynn Nichols continues to work in and around the music industry as well. Though mostly retired from the music business, Mike Mead has obviously kept his chops up as he built his real estate appraisal business. Original bassist Wade Janes moved away from Nashville and music, it seems, years ago. But though their friendship remained strong, all hope for any kind of Chagall Guevara reunion seemed long gone until a few years ago, when, possibly to simply shut some people up, the band agreed to try a Kickstarter campaign to raise the funds needed to complete and release the long-lost live album, The Last Amen. As we will hear, they ended up doing a lot more than that. So, with no further ado, I invite you to join me and a small circle of friends in the secret rehearsal lair of one of the best-kept secrets in rock history. Thank you guys for being here. I got Steve Taylor, I got Mike Mead, I got Lynn Nichols, I got Dave Perkins. Uh, and we're here in the secret lair. And we have a studio audience. Everybody in the studio audience, give us like a roaring... <laughs> We are here in advance of your storming of the Ryman, and it's almost like the Twilight Zone to think that Chagall Guevara is headlining the Ryman with Over the Rhine. It's amazing. So this story to me is one of the most fascinating, frustrating stories, and it's perfect. It's perfect. Tell me about the early days when the first concept of this band came together. who first cooked up this idea, pull all these people from these different groups, and this this first concept came together for this group? Well, let's see. I'm going to dig deep and see if I can find a dirty morsel to throw into the story. We've told it so many times. <laughs> well, um, no, maybe I better not. It started conversations 
I think initially between Steve and I, I was in California helping Steve record. Uh, well, first we worked on an album called I Predict 1990, which was grandly prophetic as it turned out because he did predict 1990, which is that <laughs> right. we'd still be sitting in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> During that process, uh, you know, Steve was going through... Uh, you know, deep and long conversations with his record company at the time and with himself, uh, you know, what is it uh, that I want to do and where should I do it and who should I do it with? And a lot of people that were making music were, were sort of dancing around that same maypole, but because it was weighty on Steve's mind, we would talk about it and somehow the idea of well we'll do something together we'll figure out some sort of a, a band and you know we'll we'll go in strength because philosophically we had profound similarities not so much on a sociological or cultural level but on a, a personal existential level we were in the same place more or less so the idea of you know creating some art together was yeah it was not outlandish in and around that uh was lurking lynn nichols who was a record company uh suit <laughs> Before we get too far down that path, you also had a background having done a solo record that was amazing, in my opinion, and working with T-Bone with that What Records effort to try to take music, because you've, you've mentioned the Maypole and we're kind of dancing around this idea that there were these smart artists with kind of spiritual underpinnings trying to make music for the whole world, but kept getting thrown into this kind of timeout room. and. You had done that with what records as an artist, but and then you're working with Steve. I don't know. Is there some kind of were, were you taking a little bit of what you had learned or your experience as an artist and also bringing that kind of sensibility into what was going on with Steve as well? In as much as I was making contributions to Steve's, it was I mean they were my contributions that just who I was as a as a music maker. Yeah, and it wasn't just the um, the what records stuff, but a long uh, history of being a guitar player. So I brought all that, um, yeah, all those little lessons. We all have them. We all we all sort of um, share them with each other. But uh, I think the, the the thing that got us started is that Steve and I had a uh, sort of a shared playlist. We had a couple of 
important things in common. Uh, one of them was the Clash. You know, we were both stoned Clash freaks and uh, really liked what they did. And, and so we knew that there was a, a beginning place for Then Lynn was uh, uh, Lynn was in the in in the picture, and I can't speak for Lynn, but I think that in a sense he was asking himself the same questions that we were asking ourselves. This is Lynn Nichols, and what what were you? Just real quick, your background kind of leading up into this. You said it you is. were a, you were a suit, but I think I it was, was a, well, yeah, maybe a little oversimplification. Yeah. yeah, well, it is. <laughs> uh, but uh, well, I was running Murr Records, but. Uh, at that time, uh, I was working with uh, Sam Phillips, Leslie Phillips first, and then she became Sam, Reinvent, little reinvention uh, through the T-Bone involvement. But What Records was part of my, under my charge. Right. Exit Records and What Records were both all part of my universe. And I was taking those people and pitching them to A&M Records. I had met Dave and uh, really just sort of resonated with Dave and his music and what he was doing. And, and uh, uh, we just had so much in common, not only as guitarists, but as people who were seeing a larger picture about art in the world of a right. believer. And, you know, uh, it didn't have a lot to do with Christian music. Right. It had to do with making great music right. and taking it out to, to, to a wider world. Uh, Russ Taff was another person I was working with in the, in the, in the same sense on a different side of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, the last record I made there was uh, Lead Me On with Amy was the last one I made before I made my departure to do this, this thing. Yeah. Uh, and the Russ Taff self-title record was that year. And also the, the Phil Keggy Sunday's Child record was that year, right. uh, which I produced that as well. Steve, his label was th was throwing him out. Uh, Sparrow, no. <laughs> throwing no. him out. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it may have felt like he, he was being greatly misunderstood over at Sparrow, and he was in the middle of a record that wasn't finished, uh, which was I Predict 1990, which became mm -hmm. I Predict 1990, and uh, so he he we met up, and I listened to the music, and we talked, and it really it was just like. Let's do this. Right. Let's do this. So we made a deal, bought him out of his contract with Sparrow, and uh, he came on board. And uh, I had been working with Dave, and we were making Dave's record, which was is is as you mentioned, a, a wonderful record, a great record. Mike was a part of that as well. That's how I met Mike, in fact, because Dave brought Mike along and said, "I got this drummer that we really need to use. You need to hear this guy." So. Uh, so Mike came in, but uh, so we had, we were making the Innocent up in Vancouver, in fact, and um, 
Steve came on board. And so it was sort of all this, uh, I sort of felt like Dave would be nice in the mix with Steve and that gelled. And as Dave mentioned that there was a lot going on there and it, it really worked well. Same with Stonehill and a few other people that um, had Dave get in the act on producing yeah. and being involved with. But anyway, so that was the whole stew. And you mentioned T-Bone. Well, you know, T-Bone came into the mix, the what thing, and Mark Hurt, who was my neighbor too at that time. Uh, And we were collaborating on a lot of stuff. And so Ideola came out of that, as you know. And T-Bone, really, we brought him in to work with with Leslie on what became The Turning. And then that's when she sort of reinvented herself and became Sam. Then T-Bone asked me, can you let her out of her deal? (laughs) And I'm like, well, you know, uh, because I wanted to put her on what records? I wanted to move it over there. But T-Bone said, I've I've got to deal with Virgin. I mean, they want to sign her now and all that. So long story short is I just let her out of the deal so that she could go pursue that. And so she did. And that's a whole, that's for another uh, podcast. The what thing is is relevant here, and, and we want to kind of segue into talking about how Chagall evolved, because what, if I'm correct, was an intentional effort yeah. to distance all of these artists and right. this music from the stigma of what had become a very big industry of CCM music. So what records had Tony O.K., had Dave Perkins? It was designed to be that, right? I'm, yes, I'm, it was, yes. Did it work? Um, well, you're still talking about it. So on a certain oh, level, I think it was a fab, it did right. a fabulous job. My, my vision for that and our vision for that wasn't fully realized. Uh, and, and it really gets down to a lot of things, but I mean, support of the label, you know, we were able to sell this idea to the powers that be. And, and then when it comes down to sort of spending the money and, you know, my, my whole pitch was we're making so much money on Amy Grant. It's ridiculous. <laughs> We need to invest in some of these other things and we need to do a, a little thing I call artist development and, and right. uh, take these things to obviously another place that you know, we were talking about getting out into a, uh, another, right. a broader world, into the culture and taking actual great music out there to people. But anyway, I had within me people, within my own company, people kind of fighting me. I, I, we had a lot of uh, discord and right. a lot of... Uh, uh, hesitancy and, and, and started feeling a lot of the support backing off. Right. Now I had gotten A&M to agree to, uh, they were they were distributing this stuff. So if something got traction, they they would jump on it. But, but it was still considered CCM because if you went to get it at Coconuts, it was still in the Christian section. Yeah, that was the fight. It didn't fight. matter really. That was the that fight was and that was the problem. So hence the reason that I found myself at the same kind of juncture as these guys. I'm sitting here going, you know what? I can't, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, I don't, I'm not really having a good time. I'm not enjoying it. Cause I, you know, 
this is not going down the road that I, it's not my vision, you know, right. and, and it's not being fulfilled and I'm not getting the support and, and, and just too many struggles. Steve, um, I know we talked when you were on the show a couple years ago about how you you said, well, nobody wanted me in the mainstream and these people signed me and then they, they didn't kind of didn't want me either. And so tell me about the end of your years, kind of realizing that this Christian music bubble really wasn't home. What was happening that made you think, OK, I got to I got to get out of here because it seemed like you were having some success. I remember seeing you. The places were full, and it right. seemed like people were buying the records. So, yeah, yeah. what was going on that made you think I got to get out of this place? Um, I think it was you said it, it was right around the time when Christian music had become like an institution, uh, and the the uh, ceiling lowered, and the uh, televangelism scandals were happening, and <laughs> there was a lot of pressure for Christian artists to kind of make more church uh, focused music and. It's just was something that none of us were interested in doing. Not church mocking music, right, right. <laughs> which was what your love language That's probably seems true. to have yeah, been. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And then Dave and I were working on the I Predict 1990 album, and um, the the Iran Contra hearings were going on at the same time. And you had this guy uh, Oliver North, the embodiment of you know God and country, bragging about lying to people. And it has so many parallels with today. I don't even want to go there. But um, right. uh, it, it was really, it really disturbed me. And the fact that was probably the thing that animated a lot of that album was just like I just had a lot of anger. So uh, it was really exciting to think of doing something else and doing it with friends that I trusted and uh, and had a, a a bigger vision and. You know, and part of it was uh, Dave and Mike lived in Nashville. Lynn and I were living in L.A. and we decided Nashville should be the launching pad for it. So both Lynn and I moved our families to Nashville. Wow. It's 32, yeah. 33 years ago. I could have been a lawyer. I could have been a priest. I could have been a musician. But I chose to be this. How did the chemistry evolve for this to actually work as a band and not be a traveling Wilburys kind of a thing where it's just different solo artists taking a turn at the mic? Chemistry was is, is the word. We had some things that were obviously common ground, but I think we knew that we were throwing, at that point, just three. We would soon add a couple of more. Um, sort of hot potatoes you know into a plate together and it was going to take some time for us to find that path that we would that we would take the mo for making that happen was complete or as near complete as we could muster equal say equal ground and so and that was with three people writing the songs who were each uh, very opinionated, um, who were each carrying uh, fabulous but weighty um, past histories of music likes and dislikes, 
so we had to sort of sort all that stuff out and uh it wasn't easy you know we we kicked each other's asses on many many occasions but at the end of the day somehow what we came up with was pleasing to to all of us and i if you're like me you'll you'll fight tooth and nail for your idea it's the best idea in the world nobody has an idea like this idea so you know you scrap and fight uh over tiny little things because they seem important and truly they are important i remember when the record was finished uh and sort of the, the smoke had cleared a little bit of being in the studio and i just remember listening to it and and just having the sort of the epiphany of i mean i never could have done this by myself mm. this is way better than anything that i've done on my own mm. and could do so yeah somehow we figured it all out and and uh i mean if you know anything about rock and roll you know that every great band is a bloodbath <laughs> you know i mean every truly great band yeah, right you gotta, you gotta have that chemistry of, hey, these things don't mix, but we're gonna mix them. <laughs> right. uh, Stand back. This is my. It's, it's it's like any family. I mean, you you fight and you argue with your brothers and sisters, but at the end of the day, you're all you're all still in the family. The goal is the same. The path of getting there is is different for each, but but you compromise and right. and or not sometimes, and, and then it ends up where it was supposed to end up. So Mike, uh, Mike Mead, uh, you came into this thing having worked with Dave in the past. What were your impressions, and you know what had been your background in a nutshell before that? And then as you came into a room with this kind of energy, what were your impressions, and what was it like to to join something like this? Well, Dave and I go back. I think Dave and I were the first of the bunch of us to have met, and uh, in fact, Dave and I played with Rick Kua and we ended up on a bus that had I think eight eight bu eight bunks and 23 people <laughs> and these guys from Switzerland and these kids from California and and uh, that that was my introduction to like touring and and so but, but I was you know I was much younger and and was just hungry to to do more than playing clubs up and down the east coast which is what i had been doing and and um so met dave uh we did a bunch of shows with rick did one of rick's albums and then i was fortunate enough that dave asked me to do his record which is still if you don't have it you're missing something but probably still the my yeah. most favorite record i ever played on yeah. and then it all just we all connected after that mike was 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 one of um those unlikely finds or coincidences whatever you want to say 
um, that sort of didn't make a whole lot of sense at at first look, but is is really the the, the foundation of the band. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Chagall Guevara after this. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I also follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. And boy, is it eye-opening. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and more. I've discovered tons of new songs and artists and have been reminded of things I love from long ago. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically every week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all the previous lists get saved. It now features over 5,000 songs. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, Please support the artists you love once you discover them. Thanks. If you came to make some trouble, bet I make it good. I can't wait to get to Over the Rhine's Nowhere Else Festival this Labor Day weekend. Located about 45 minutes outside of Cincinnati, this homespun musical family reunion will feature sets by Carl Hayes, Courtney Marie Andrews, John Fulbright, Iris Dement, Vance Gilbert, Carrie Newcomer, Ben Sully, Nikki Lerner, Carolina Story, Willie T. Taylor, The Wine Tree, and of course, Over the Rhine. There will also be special food options, readings, art experiences, and more. Head to NowhereElseFestival.com for ticket options and details and make your plans to join us. I'll see you there. Hello, I'm Matt from Philadelphia, and I'm a Patreon backer of True Tunes. This show is really important to me. John's conversations are not only fun and interesting, they have invited me to discover and rediscover music that makes the world a better place. Every episode invites me to become a better listener, not just to music, but to the people who create it. As a result, I think I might be becoming a better listener to the people in my life as well. I know that my $5, $10, or $20 per month goes a long way toward helping with the costs associated with producing and distributing a show of this caliber. And yes, the rewards are cool too. We get early access to new episodes that we can download in a higher quality audio format, as well as invites to exclusive backers-only Zoom hangs and some special swag and stuff. Check out patreon.com slash truetunes for more information or to join me and the rest of the Patreon tribe. Thanks. We're back with Steve Taylor, Dave Perkins, Lynn Nichols, and Mike Mead of Chagall Guevara. Tell me about the the songwriting process as you guys started to actually craft the songs for Chagall. How did that process happen? We would sit in a circle, usually 
on the floor, I think, the three of us. Um, sometimes Dave would come in, start with like a riff, right? And then things would grow from that. And, you know, you'd bring in an idea. And we had like cards that we had uh, lyric yeah, phrases on and title awesome. phrases, right? But it was, uh, it was really collaborative. And I had not collaborated actually at all at that point. Like I hadn't, there, the first time I'd ever on, I predict 1990, Dave had a, a riff that I used on that song, Babylon. And so that was the first time I'd had a co-write on any song. So that was a big jump for me. And it, it took me a while to get used to the idea. It, I mean, it was like going to school too, because I, you know, I think the lyrics really hold up. I was just thinking, you know, I'm a really, pretty harsh critic of my own work and I could tell you a long list of things I wish I had done differently and I can listen to our debut album and it's like I don't think I would change anything on that album wow So, Lynn, when you listen back to that record now, put your A&R hat back on and hold the microphone. Oh, if I put my um, A&R hat on and really sort of put a record label, uh, you know, get into a record label mentality, it's a disaster. <laughs> the name is all wrong. Of the band? It's very difficult uh, yeah. to say. Right. You, people can't spell it correctly. Uh, you know, it's a marketing nightmare. Right. Uh, and, uh, no, I'm teasing. But, you know, a lot of record labels really would look at stuff that way and of course remember they tried to get us to consider changing the name yes and our comeback was well what about depeche mode <laughs> right, right. Prove them wrong. and they said that name was taken <laughs> <laughs> so we just kept it off uh but but no it, you know as from a record company standpoint i mean if you were I, i'm talking of course about the typical record company right. view. But uh, if you're looking at uh, it from the view of someone who's got, who's who's running a label, who's really looking for true art and music and, and people that are uh, original and all that, I would be really excited about a record like this, even though I was a part of it. I mean, I agree with Steve, I, I don't really hear uh, things that I would really want to change about it, you know. Uh, we spent a lot of hours, uh, as Steve just said, you know, banging has, uh, in a very good way, you know, right. you know, it's, it's sort of the uh, uh, we would be at the pancake pantry and, and we would close the place down some days. Uh, I just, you know, I can remember Dave coming out to, to L.A. and, you know, we were in a hotel room there and then we were at somebody's beach house that wasn't ours, but we somehow got to use. And we were sitting on the floor there. And usually Dave and I each had a guitar in hand and we were just kind of going. Do, you know, playing each other things and then, oh, this would be cool, you know, and uh, just kind of really gelled.
fans, I think I can speak for us. Say the record is pretty darn near perfect. You guys love it. So why, <laughs> why once again are we talking about this? Why is it so impossible for you got a major label, so you've got the machinery. Yeah. You've got the moment where that kind of music is actually popular and people are playing it on the radio. You got a great record. So what happened? Mm. Why, you know, why is it that there's dozens of fans instead of millions? Yeah, that, that's a good question. That's what my wife has asked often. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, part of it, there's, there's, there are practical answers there. We had a really tough time with our record label Initially, when we went in, everything was fantastic, and it often is when you get signed. But MCA was really in the process of wanting to do something in indie rock and in college and all that. And they were really, you know, putting us in the forefront of all that. But then they got bought out as as our record is about to right. release, and so the entire staff of people are no longer there that were our that were our champions and that are you know our friends and the people that's the people that signed us. Uh, were on the way as they were on the way out the door, they rang us and said, "Well, you better be prepared to, to be dropped from the right. label because everybody's fired." And the weird thing, and as you may know, we didn't get dropped. Weirdly, because uh, you know, uh, well, I don't know why. Really, to be honest, I'm not sure why we didn't get dropped. We wanted to get dropped uh, <laughs> because everything was chaos, you know, and their their focus was Bobby Brown, you know, at that time. And uh, they were they, the people that were coming in were all R&B oriented people, and they're looking at us like, "What are we going to do with you guys?" You know, uh, let us go, perhaps. You know, but it, it, they didn't. They let a lot of other bands go, didn't they? Yeah, but we, for whatever reason, they advanced us money to make another record, and we didn't want to do it. And uh, we finally came to the point where we tried to figure out how can we get off the label. And we t we had been talking to uh, an attorney who was uh, uh, suggesting that. You know, one of us need to go do it. We can't, you can't, he can't go in and talk to them because then they're going to say, well, well, you're going to sign them to someplace. We want, you know, we're not going to do that or, we're, or we want a big chunk of that or whatever. So at the end of the day, I went, I got the short straw, I guess, you know, but I, I went out and, and eventually we got off. But to go back and, 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 and say, why didn't things happen? Well, that was a part of it. Our management company, uh, you know, in retrospect, we were kind of pushed toward by the label pushed kind mm -hmm. of uh, toward this management company called Lookout Management and Elliot Roberts, who's no longer living. And at that time he was managing Neil Young and uh, uh, Fishbone. Who else was he? He was uh, Bob Dylan, Tracy, you know, Joni Mitchell, you know, all these people. He'd like written, he, he, he's part of writing rock history, this guy, mm -hmm. except that he was a complete disaster. I mean, he got to the point where, you know, his, his people at the office, his partner, would call us when we were supposed to have meetings and say, I haven't seen him in a week. I don't know right. where he is, you know. And, you know, we had some issues with drugs and marital issues and a lot of things that uh, were troubling. So we had a very bad time of it with him. You know, we, we kept saying we'd fire him, but he wouldn't even know who we are. <laughs> I, I don't think, you know, maybe. And at the end of the day, we didn't realize that lookout management was actually a warning. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. Either. We yeah, saw that right, later. Right. Hindsight. So that was a problem right. because we didn't have management he, we passed up we we were wanting we didn't really get to tour america on the level that we wanted to we did a lot of clubs and a lot of stuff but uh we didn't really get to do the level we wanted uh this guy kept turning down stuff for us <laughs> you know it's like you know there were there were gigs coming up but 
he would say, no, I don't want you guys on that. I don't like to look, I, I don't want you associated with whatever it was, you know. And there were, after a while, it's like, just, we don't care, you know. Right. We just, we just want to go play. Let us go play. So fortunately, we had a separate management team in England. So they were much better at getting us uh, st stuff going on over there. And so we had a lot more traction in England. And consequently, you know, we went on the tour, uh, tour with Squeeze, mm -hmm. which was a, a wonderful time. But, you know, it just, there were, there were so many things stacked against it all working, you know. And we're all like grown up people with kids too, you know. So it, yeah. it was just very difficult to, uh, to keep it all going forward right. with all this against you. talk about the last amen that show what what can you remember let's just set the stage because we finally get to hear this thing what was the thinking going into i mean recording multi-track analog tape like that that's not like what you know these days doing a live record it's not that hard to do but back then this is a lot of effort so tell me about the show the night the venue just give us a little bit of context for yes what it, was a, it was a club called 328 performance hall is downtown and um we played there at least once before i think right i think we played there a couple few times yeah. it was a good vibe uh dave had a friend malcolm harper who brought his remote truck right to record it on 16 track analog yeah. you know it was just a really good night it was it was a really crazy it was sold out there was uh, a lot of uh stage diving <laughs> a noisy crowd but and at that point i mean we were in kind of top form we'd been touring enough and uh played enough that we had i remember the very first time we played in nashville i think it was opening for walk the west maybe oh. no that it was it was downtown on on second avenue there was that place is not Dancing. there anymore right and i remember my wife and Asa i think clubs? no not even ace of clubs it was like a yeah something oh, yeah, it's not right. even there anymore and i remember my wife I, I, I think my wife thought we'd made a mistake um and <laughs> uh, i think walk the west maybe came to see us that night and they just said y'all y'all are good you just need some road donk and yeah. i've never heard the better phrase it just meant you need to get out and play more right? right and we did that a lot and by the time we played 328 we had road donk <laughs> She was a virgin vixen She had the eyes of Lassie She had the lips of Nixon Lips like Trisha Nixon I stole a sideways glance at a continental shelf And I knew she was the devil himself
when you listen back to the last amen now and, and it's been mixed and it sounds so great what kind of memories does it evoke for you of the show do you have pictures in your head of playing it do you remember the I stage remember the show very well um that night you know it it's i want to go on record to say that that was by no means our best night we had if you like the record imagine an extra 25 percent that could be layered on top of that it the the, the night was chaotic it was um I think we played in Birmingham or Huntsville like the night before or, or the day before that. And, and you and I were, were like coming down with something and you had a buddy who was an attorney in, in Huntsville or Birmingham. And, and you and I got, he, he got us hooked up with some doctor and gave us, yeah, gave us a, we got like a shot in the butt that was like, okay, we're going to, you know, now we can make it through the show. But do you remember being, we were coming down with something yeah, maybe, maybe. I, I, <laughs> I just, I just remember that, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't our best night. There were, there were some, some significant gaps in the, uh, in the performance by some of us, uh, no one that's in this room right now, but, uh, <laughs> there's an empty chair yeah, just to my right. Anyway, you know, it, it was a, it was a good night. It was yeah. a it was a real good night. It wasn't our wasn't our greatest night. People were having a good time. You know, if people are stripping <laughs> and trying to take the stage without any clothes on, you're doing something right. It's a, it's a <laughs> it's a good night. Now, when you just did this Kickstarter to like come up with some money to finish this record and put it out, you kind of knew it was going to explode like this and you were going to... I didn't. I... Was it really a surprise? Because it wasn't a surprise to me. I had never been part of a Kickstarter campaign. And so the question is, well, me to them, you know, what do you, what do you think? I mean, what, you know, how much do you ask for? And they spit out a number, and I, I didn't voice it, but in my mind I said, "Yeah, fat chance. Nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna do that." Eighteen hours later, we're on to the next, the next round. So I, w I was surprised. Uh, yeah, I, I was surprised. I, I was right before we did it. I thought, um, "This may, I, well, I think we could probably make it eventually." But yeah, I was nervous about it too. And when you added the stretch goals that said, oh, we'll make a new record if we get this level. Oh, we'll play a live right, show. Right. You yeah, thought well, you're you just wouldn't kinda, have to do those because you wouldn't hit those goals? Yeah, because you're, you're really of, ready to do it. You're huffing on your own fumes. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think we enjoyed the, the fact that it went so well so soon that we just started dreaming bigger and, you know, 
it, it was a lot <laughs> it ended up being a lot harder to get everything done than we I think initially thought it would be but it was you know we finally made it the thing for me was the sudden awareness as people are writing back in they're making their contributions and they're writing sending us notes we had never toured the United States right you know I had no idea that the music we made I knew it was good in my opinion but when I read the comments that were coming in from people that were contributing, it really took me aback. And I, I was surprised that the music had impacted people's lives as they were telling us that, that it did. That was the best thing about the Kickstarter experience for me was that, yeah, I still get a little buzz over it. Well, over 30 years, there had been several instances where somebody you know we had this live record that was all done and somebody was going to pick it up and they wanted to release it on this label or that label or you know uh, I'd, I'd heard it before i'd heard it for 30 years and finally i i said you know it's like we painted a picture that was this really good painting and then we just stuck it in the attic and nobody's gonna ever see it so I said, boys, it's, let's, let's just put it out there. I mean, I'll, I'll pay to put it on Spotify if that's what we need to do. And then, you know, I had no idea how you do any of that. But, but it was like, it's, it's time to, you know, let's get this thing out of the attic and put it out there so people can see it, whatever it is. <laughs> really, we did the Kickstarter just so Mike would stop calling me. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Did it work? <laughs> We're going to step away from my conversation with the guys for just a few minutes and crank up the True Tunes jukebox. As you've heard us mention, one of the things Steve Taylor did after the untimely death of Chagall Guevara was to start his own label. Though it functioned as an indie, Squint Entertainment was funded by Word Music, which was, at that time, owned by Gaylord Entertainment, which owned the Grand Ole Opry, a chain of hotels, and the TNN network. The mission of Steve and his gang of co-conspirators was to sign and support artists that, though they may have come from the community of faith, were excellent enough and savvy enough to function in the real world of the music industry. One of those groups would release an album and single that would become one of the biggest songs in the world in 1998. So, let's drop a couple of these pogs in the slot here and see what kind of late 90s goodness we can dial up. After the Chagall Guevara years, Steve Taylor returned as both a producer of other artists and eventually as a solo artist once again. His 1993 album Squint is one for the ages if you haven't heard it. After that album and a live follow-up, Taylor dug into film production work and started Squint Entertainment toward that end. One thing led to another and in 1997, with funding from Word Entertainment, Squint became a record label. 
Taylor's idea was to take what he had learned as a solo artist and as a member of Chicago Guevara on a mainstream label and as a producer and apply all of that to the development of artists who, though they might come from a spiritual or even Christian perspective personally, intended to create music that would speak to the entire culture and not merely the evangelical subculture. first projects Taylor produced and released through Squint was the self-titled album by an alternative pop group from New Braunfels, Texas called Sixpence None the Richer. Sixpence had been working in the underground for several years at that point and was connected to a failing label when Taylor got involved. The results were immediate. Chief songwriter and guitarist Matt Slocum dug deeper than ever and vocalist Lee Nash found an entirely new realm of expressiveness and emotional resonance. On balance, the album is a dense, dark document of the trials and travails of a young group struggling to survive an array of challenges, both global and existential. In the middle of the beautiful maelstrom, however, was a brief clearing, a sweet, romantic ditty that the band would not have included on the album if Taylor hadn't insisted. This next song is called Kiss Me. It's the first single off a record that came out on Tuesday, so you can get it anywhere, and uh, we're very, very excited about it, so this is called Kiss Me. Kiss me out of the bearded barley nightly Beside the green, green grass Swing, swing, swing the spinning step Kiss Me, which I still believe is far more sophisticated than most people realize, absolutely leapt off that album, propelled by some key film and television placements, but ultimately transcending all of that. It peaked at number two on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and was a global hit. Right out of the gate, Sixpence had crafted a rich, meaningful album and had scored a massive commercial smash. Squint had a major hit on its hands. Sometimes, though, that kind of success can actually be a different kind of curse. Twisted castles in her hair Building mountains in the air Making profits, lending loans Ancient cities, golden telephones But within this misty cave Lies a painter, blind but brave Paints the story through contacts at AM and Word, Taylor and his team discovered an eclectic Brooklyn-based folk rock band called Burlap to Cashmere that were already packing clubs and coffee houses in the Big Apple and had already signed with AM. 
burlap Stephen Delopoulos and his cousin Johnny Philippides incorporated expansive orthodox gospel ideas into their spirited music in ways that felt much more in common with world music or jam bands than anything related to contemporary Christian music. Squint agreed and saw the potential to develop them on a wider scale. Yes, the road is narrow. Yes, the road is tough. But whoever remaineth in hell shall not die, but lift up. I remember meeting the cousins, along with other members of the band, the first day that they spent doing interviews with Christian media in Nashville during GMA week that year. Squint wanted me to be their first interview of the day at about 9 in the morning, and then arranged for us to have dinner together later that day too. I remember getting together with them at the Hard Rock Cafe to eat, and they were completely freaked out by the day that they had had with Christian media. One of the guys had been asked point blank if he was a virgin. Another was asked several doctrinal questions he didn't even understand. The one thing most of them didn't seem interested in was the music, they said. I also remember that night when they played a few songs at one of the evening showcases. The place went nuts for them, truly. But when Phil Keggy came out to trade licks with Johnny, the kid had no idea who he was playing with. He told me he was used to playing anyone on stage under the table. But that old guy, well, he could really play. Who is that guy, he asked me. Another band that Squint came alongside was a post-grunge rock trio from the Chicago area that had played our Upstairs at True Tunes Club a time or two. Chevelle was a killer young band with absolutely no interest in ever being known as or presented as a Christian rock band. They were deadly serious about working with the best producers, like Steve Albini, and playing with the best bands around. They held themselves to very high standards, and it showed. It seems I've gained the world, but have nothing To keep tabs upon this loss isn't wasted time Face opportunities to recognize Now we have the time Rebuke don't choke on this twisted dream Cause he'll say
comprised of brothers Pete, Sam, and Joe Loeffler, they released only one album for Squint, called Point Number One, before moving to Epic Records. They're still active today, having sold over six million albums and maintaining over two million monthly listeners on Spotify. Another highlight from the early annals of Squint was the 1999 album Everyone's Beautiful by Waterdeep. Hopefully you heard my full conversation with Don and Lori Chaffer on the podcast. If not, go look it up. But after several indie projects and having built a devoted underground fan base, Squint was definitely able to help Waterdeep get to another level in terms of production and style. Millennium model of young, strong Christian men I've been graced since birth, there's no need to pretend We break out for whatever break a bend The rules broke fools, no jewels but good friends Comprehend what I recommend Keep an eye on your ends Baby tried to get me for my dividends Cop collect, uno got the mic check Do they want my number, I'ma say wait a sec What the heck, I'ma be on Wisha and La Brea Next to BK in the house full of prayer Express the real, I'm real to real Transferred to tape of vinyl My rhyme for reasons other than trying to gain a title I'm no idol, but a living word like survival Mark my Words when I speak it, my decision's final. Looking for some life, but you don't know what to do. You try to get a little bit of LA simple, but it's very expensive. One of the most frustrating near misses for the Squint team must have been the insanely cool hip-hop collective LA Symphony. That group, comprised mainly of Flynn Adam, Uno Mas, Cookbook, Joey the Jerk, Sherlock Poems, now known as Serene Poems, Jay Beats, B-Twice, and Pigeon John, had released an indie project before connecting with several people at Word and Squint, including Dave Palmer, and spent a ton of time and energy working with the label on a really cool project called Call It What You Want. Official bootleg copies were sold by the band at shows, problems between Squint and its owners were starting to develop, and the album was never actually released. LA Symphony wound up signing with Goatee, where they released several killer projects, spawned numerous indie spin-offs, and continue to find new fans today. Pigeon John, in particular, who you've been hearing on our weekly mixes, is extremely prolific and extremely cool. Yeah, I'm up on the cloud, ain't coming back down. Feel it in my bones, gotta shake it out. I'm going harder than before, let me hear you shout. I run around the whole world, chasing that thrill. From the bottom to the top, I'm finna knock it out. I'm about the road, 
Generally speaking, during Squint's short lifespan, they had an amazing hit-to-miss ratio. The only core CCM project I can remember was the Christian ska band The Insiders, who had signed with Gene Eugene and Joey Taylor's Brainstorm artists after being discovered at one of the generator stages at Cornerstone before Brainstorm shut down. Squint picked them up, and their quick success gave validation to the label's model, providing space to continue developing innovative artists. Regardless of how well you might think Ska has aged, you gotta hand it to the Insiders as a band who knew their fans, knew their calling, and found a way to take their form of gospel music straight into the mainstream via tours and live shows as well. They were a favorite at the old upstairs at True Tunes venue, to be sure. Toward the end of their run, Taylor and Dave Palmer put together a fascinating compilation album based on the writings of author Bob Briner. Briner, a television producer and sports manager, impacted many artists in the Christian world with his book, Roaring Lambs. In it, Briner offered a call for people of faith to impact culture in authentic and meaningful ways, as opposed to simply reaching each other in echo chambers and self-serving commercial vacuums. Although Briner was a devout and articulate evangelical, he had found aspects of the management and communication style of Jesus, as depicted in the Bible, to be both more effective and more biblical than the confrontational and propositional ways in which many Christians were operating. Taylor approached Briner with the idea of an album featuring songs and artists operating in this way, and Briner, who was battling cancer, enthusiastically endorsed it. I wish I'd That project, Roaring Lambs, featured mainstream artists like Over the Rhine and Vigilantes of Love, alongside Sixpence, PFR, Jars of Clay, Ashley Cleveland, Burlap to Cashmere, Steve Taylor, and some amazing collaborations, including Charlie Peacock with Ladysmith Black Mombazo, and it made one of the most eclectic and interesting compilations of the era. The fruit of the spirit. 
love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, patience, kindness, generosity. South Africa and Overall, Squint did exactly what they set out to do. They found great artists, invested in them, worked hard to keep them out of the ghetto, and largely succeeded. So, what do you get when you operate a label that generates hits, including one of the biggest songs on the planet, and manages to see success in rock, rap, pop, and alternative music? You get destroyed. The ownership behind Word changed once again, and the new owners pushed Taylor out of his own company. When a band is as hot as Sixpence, you just know that the suits are going to show up with their money extraction machines. As eloquently as Roaring Lambs articulated a vision for impacting the culture in an artful, winsome way, by 2001, Taylor was ousted, and Squint was effectively over. Word brought the name back later for a few projects, but the spirit had left the building. The way the axe fell on our heroes, though, is worthy of a scene in Spinal Tap. Power pop group PFR, whose drummer Mark Nash was an A&R rep for the label at the time, reunited to make a project for Squint. The band was on the road with Squint's head of promotion, John Butler, doing a promo tour supporting their perhaps prophetically titled Disappear LP, and the label's radio promoter, our good friend, the late Jay Schwarzendruber, was on his honeymoon when the label got shut down. The dream was officially over. Just like that, everyone was fired. I reached out to Dave Palmer to ask him what he thought as he reflected on the halcyon days of Squint these 20-some years later. Looking back at Squint, the thing that comes to mind most immediately to me is the sense of possibility that we had and the sense of camaraderie from our staff to our artists to so many people that supported us. Um, and that it was really sort of focused around a certain point of view that we had that was validated. Um, not that it was necessarily a, a better point of view or a more noble point of view or anything like that, I, uh, but it was just ours. And, and feeling validated with that, I think, gave us a sense of uh, where our place was in that business at the time. From a broader perspective, one of the things that jumps out to me now as a memory was um, my wife Michelle and I were volunteer youth group leaders at, at the church we were at at the time. And one of the young women, uh, high school women in the group then had gone to Lilith Fair and saw Sixpence. And of course, uh, I'd been talking them up for a long time. And she came back from that and just said, it was so great to see that band there because it made me realize that my faith goes with me wherever I am and with whoever I'm with. Um, and that it's not something that I have to relegate to church activities or things that are, you know, necessarily stamped with a certain message of faith or anything like that. And and that's really, 
think that's what we wanted uh, in a lot of ways, was just to validate for, for most of us on staff and, and so many people, we just felt like a little bit of the Island of Misfit Toys in, in certain circles. And we just wanted to have that sense of our faith and our love of music to be validated somewhere else. And, and I love that in some way we were able to, to do that and make it work and, uh, and see the possibility in that and share that all together. Sorry, but I think the jukebox is either crying or about to start spitting nails. We'd better pull the plug and get back to the conversation with the guys. I promise you, there is a happy ending here. We'll hear all about it right after this. True Tunes is on the road. I've been to Indiana, California, Tennessee, Iowa, and Illinois so far, and we are currently looking at opportunities around the country. These conversations have been a lot of fun, with me bringing a turntable and some records and a guitar, and often finding artists or other special guests to join me. I've also done songwriting workshops, music business clinics, and even some conversations about how we can slow ourselves down and listen to music more carefully, more thoughtfully, and yes, more spiritually. So there's kind of something for everyone. You can follow all of the action at truetunes.com slash events. And if you would be interested in having me come speak in your neck of the woods, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. I'm also excited to be aligning with the Porchlight Network for house shows. Porchlight is a growing network of house show venues around the country, and you can learn more at porchlight.art. So for house shows, look me up at Porchlight. For schools, venues, churches, or other opportunities, just connect with me directly. Hey, this is Ray. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm a Patreon supporter of the True Tunes podcast. One thing I've done, and I know makes a big difference for True Tunes, is to sign up for the email list at truetunes.com. may not seem like a big deal, and it is really easy to do, but it's more important than ever for them to be able to communicate with us without having to pay the middlemen like Facebook or Instagram. I have a feeling that John has some big ideas brewing. And having the ability to let us know is going to be pivotal to the success of those ideas. It's easy to do. Just find the link in the upper right corner of the homepage at truetunes.com and voila! Then, make sure to check for the confirmation message and respond. It can also help if you add jjt at truetunes.com to your contacts so that the messages from John don't get caught in your spam filter. Who knows? 
you might even win a free record, poster, or t-shirt just for being on the list. Pretty sweet deal if you ask me. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back in the secret rehearsal space of Chagall Guevara. The Halcyon Days project is a hybrid of tracks that had been started but not finished, a couple that had been finished but needed to be remixed and remastered, and a couple that are just new. Yes. Tell me about the the, the chemistry, the DNA of what this album is. Who wants to tell Well, that? we had um, songs that we had started recording uh, when we were trying to get off the label and so we we <laughs> that sounds like a strange yeah <laughs> so we want to get off the label here's, here's well, we did, so we, yeah we hadn't played them for They're the label songs. i think you hear like on the those songs especially like uh you know bullets worth a thousand words and um i madness especially in, when you i hear treasure of the broken that that just sounds like we're all in a lot of pain <laughs> there are like a, a lot of anguish in those songs and i remember the time period and we were all i don't think any of us were doing very well uh i don't want to speak for anybody else but i know there was a lot of mental anguish going on about the band possibly breaking up and you know life changes that we'd all made to make it possible and it was a pretty difficult time so we had those songs but then you also had this song halcyon days that was like <laughs> like really fun and joyful and uh is a, a pretty great encapsulation of the whole experience of getting signed to a big label and um it's pretty it's pretty telling and appropriate and funny to have an album called halcyon days a, a cliche that means these were the good old days about a band that has just gone down in flames like this is yes. and it's and, and the lyrics like you're talking about the ollie north hearings it's like bullets worth a thousand all these things sound like you could have gotten together last week and written these about what's going on now and right. it's about the decline of western civilization and the end of humanity and it's halcyon days pretty these, much, these are the good yes. old days because yeah. it's only going downhill from here well it's and that's why amazing. we uh we had an original album cover that our original album designer had done tim steadman and it was a, a pretty good album cover but the more we lived with it the less it felt like that was the thing right and we got this album called Halcyon Days and we call up our friend Jonathan Richter and just said, hey, come up with a cover for this. And and we don't agree on anything. Like, <laughs> And I think that was one of the very first times when all of us saw that album cover. It's like, there it is. And I can't tell you exactly what it is about that album cover, but that's just exactly the right cover for the album. So what songs on it are new? The new ones are um, uh, Resurrection Number no. 9 right. and uh, Surrender and um, uh, um, the other one. <laughs> got any change? <laughs> got, no, not got any change. Uh, no, Goldfingers? Goldfingers, yes. Yeah, Goldfingers. So tell me about Resurrection Number no. 9. Like, Let's talk about that coming together, the writing of it, and the idea. I love the reference, the Beatles kind of overtones in it, but um, tell me. Wow. About it. Um, it started with a 
uh, guitar idea that you had going, Dave. You had a thing going. It was you had a you had a previous title. What was that? Yes, it's Dirty Mary. Yeah. It is Dirty Mary. These are all temp titles. You know how yeah. you know you yeah. got a you got a riff going or an idea right. going, and it's a temp title. So, yeah, that's right. I think Bloody Mary was the other was Goldfinger, but this one was um, something something to do with funk, something or other. I can't remember now. We'll have to we'll get back to you on that. <laughs> have to get back. Um, but yeah, no, I mean it started with kicking around this musical idea and of course the pandemic is going so um we're all doing things in our own home studio situation you know so uh we're trading files back and forth and making roughs and sending them in saying well, you know so it's a little bit different than when we're sitting on the floor in the room you know so uh but i think if we hadn't had that experience we probably would have struggled a lot more to do this because mm -hmm. we had that under our belt, you know, and we'd work together. But I think, you know, it presented challenges, but it, 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 it was, it was cool. It was like a different way to go at it. Uh, but we just shuffled back and forth ideas and we're like, no, I like this, but what about, you know, as you do. And um, same with lyrics, you know, uh, all these things kind of just morphed into. Uh, were you all speaking into the lyrics? The first record we did together, it was almost um, discussion and sometimes Mortal Kombat over every line. These three songs, um, Steve really did the heavy lifting on these. Uh, we were in a place that we we really couldn't get together. We couldn't work together. Lynn had issues in his home with someone who was. Uh, immunocompromised. I was going through the same thing, cancer treatment, and so we couldn't we couldn't sit together. Steve got the ball rolling on the songs, and I think they still they still sound like we all sort of chipped away at them. But oh, yeah. um, I think the truth of it is is that those three are uh, Steve's sweat equity in the songs. So, Steve, um, you mentioned how back in the day, the first time around, frustration with the compromised moral leadership uh, going on, not necessarily just out there, but in here, in the family and the people that should be maybe uh, looking for better examples. And these are the examples we're, we're given. And you mentioned that that was just the opening act. Uh, <laughs> so tell me about how you took something as fraught as this day, this age, these issues, and how do you, how do you as a songwriter, as a lyricist in particular, even go there at all in a way that won't immediately alienate people of one side or the other? 
Yeah, well, for starters, I think we could care less about alienating people at this point. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> um, and also, where I might have been doing some of the initial heavy lifting on the lyrics, two things are happening. One is both Dave and Lynn are speaking into it and suggesting revisions, and so that's part of the process. And then second, I learned so much from about lyric writing from working with Dave and Lynn on the first album that I'm just trying to make sure that I'm trying to create something that has a better chance of passing the star chamber. McCartney to begin said with, the same right? thing about like, even when he was writing on his own, he knew that Lennon was going to hear it. Right. And so he had that in mind and he knew what he was going to say about something. And even when they weren't together, Lennon was really speaking. Into right. The writing. So yeah. It's so that's like, I'm feeling, I'm feeling them in the room, even though we're all separated by a pandemic. And the other thing that happened with the recording is we'd have some rough ideas. And I think, uh, maybe put put a roadmap but but the songs really started when mike when we recorded mike's drums because that was like foundational and once that once we had that the song started coming to life because otherwise you know resurrection number nine that drum part he put together was yeah. awesome and doing those I, all i had was a you know, a guitar reference track. I had no idea what the song was going to be about or anything. And then, you know, I'm used to being in the studio with Dave saying, Hey, Mike, what if you, what if you did it this way? Or what if you put the, this one here? And, and, and so we kind of were like doing that. We'd like put a track down and we'd call Dave and we'd, we'd send him the track or play the track for him. And he'd say, okay, try this. And, um, so we worked through it. I mean, it, without being in the room together we kind of worked it out and uh fortunately had a good friend who had a great sound and drum studio sean paddock and uh we're able to do the drums there and uh the one thing i remember is the first day we went in there and and it was steve and steve and i and and sean and we did it we did a track and, and it made a couple passes and steve calling up and i don't know if it was dave or lynn saying hey Hey, it's it's okay, Mike. He's still got it. He can. He's still got it. <laughs> Dave, you've been a producer of artists for a long time from a variety of genres. And when you, this, this was such a handicap. There was, there was such a, um, a, a strange set of handcuffs placed on you, uh, all of you by this pandemic and this distance and the screens. And, uh, as a producer and you listen now, you said, when you listen back to the first album, you feel like you wouldn't change a thing. When you listen to this project now, 
do you feel like it hangs together? Do you feel like it's still got that DNA? Were you able to overcome the the screens and the distance and somehow still breathe in? We oh, we overcame it just in uh, sort of the bluntness of getting it done. You know, I mean, that's, it took us so long to get it done. You know, I, I, our very kind, generous contributors, um, I think we're being asked to wait too long for something that they had paid for. So we we're definitely feeling the pressure. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it hangs together or not. Uh, these guys probably have a better sense of that than, than I do. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's, the first one was easy for me to appreciate. This one, it's maybe it's just that it's too new. It's too new. There's too much stuff going on. Um, I hope it's good. <laughs> we we all put in uh, a lot of soul power, spirit power, physical power. We did our jobs. We did what we were supposed to do. Yeah, it's just different for me this time. I don't know. I wish I had a good answer for you, but that's that's it. I think um, as people respond, uh, that will have a cumulative effect in my appreciation for the record. I'll, I think this one I'll have to get to it through other people's ears. Well, I can tell you this story. Um, once we had finished, I don't know if we'd finished all of them or not, but anyway, I went back to New York to, to visit and uh, me and some of my old high school friends are sitting around having a beer. And I took a couple of them. I had it on a, on a little USB drive. And, and so I, I took them out to my car and I plugged it in. And I said, OK, you guys tell me which one of these songs recorded, you know, three months ago and which one did we record 30 years ago? And they couldn't tell. They, they nice. thought they were all great. And so I thought that was kind of cool. I got a little different take than Dave. I think the album's freaking great. I listen to it all the time. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> like to say I that. just keep listening and listening and listening to it. I don't know why. Yeah, I'm because I'm really critical. I just love it, and I listen. I I that's one one of the reasons it's been fun to to uh, rehearse these songs is because I know them so well now. And uh, and then when we get to that uh, treasure, of the broken land at the end, that's like feels like the perfect ending to the album and you know we we were supposed to put tale of twister on this album which is another song that i love but it i just couldn't figure out where it would go we were we were trying to sequence it and you know and and frankly forgot about it at first and then it's like oh what are we gonna do we're supposed to it's like i don't know where you put it on this album so yeah i i really like the album my um take on the record is that because steve is critical and honest about his own work the fact that he likes it makes me say yeah I'll defer <laughs> it's good
while you have the mic, hold on to it, because uh, I want to get into a little bit of a philosophical question to kind of close this out. Uh, and, and it's so appropriate that you ended the album with a Mark Hurd song, because he's another guy who got caught in the gears, you know, stuck in, in a room that he probably didn't belong in, uh, writing music that deserved to be heard by the whole world, but couldn't punch his way out of the bag that he was in. Um, Dave, your position at Vanderbilt, you are working and thinking about teaching about theology, art. You're a professor. You're a PhD in this space. I need you to put your professorial gowns on and, and help me a little bit with, with uh, what can we expect art, music in particular, to actually do spiritually for us? Why is it that we're so hungry for this stuff that means something? Are we after something? We've been after it from the beginning. And the fact that we haven't pinned it down is a testament to the abstraction of that to which we're hoping something flies out when we're poking the bushes. But I think in terms of art, um, you know, experience is the most powerful. It's more powerful than an intellectual gain or a theoretical question that seems to work its way toward truth. Art is all about experience. And uh, with the gift of art, music making, picture making, storytelling, rhyming, whatever it is, in ways that are uh, mysteries, each one of them each methodology, each approach, we can combine those theoretical treatises with um, just a, an experiential toehold on something that's that's real. I, and, I, and I think that's that's why um, I love doing what I do. That's a huge question, and I could probably give you a much better answer and a much more uh, worthy answer for having been awarded the degree that I was awarded at Vanderbilt, uh, but uh, not this afternoon. <laughs> ceiling and needed to get out and now you had the experience of doing this with Chagall and that didn't work 
And then you kind of went back in and did some more work of your own. And then you started Squint and you helped a couple other artists leak out, you know, with Sixpence, Chevelle, right. Burlap, LA Symphony. Um, were you kind of realizing that maybe the, the key is you just, you have to go away from this kind of whole concept of Christian industry, Christian product making, because what people are after, if they're after art, if they're after something interesting, it's, it's to a totally different uh, transaction than people who are really looking for Christian products to reinforce the, the subculture that they're a part of. And that you just have to, so you took your wounds and you coached these people in a way to kind of avoid the, the ghetto that you ended up stuck in. Yeah. Well, I know I couldn't have done any of that without the experience of being in Chagall Guevara. So that was, you know, formative on every level. And I think I was a, a reasonably good, uh, artist beforehand. And, but the band experience changed pretty much everything for me. So, uh, that was pretty foundational. And now where does this sit in your, you've kind of have a, a multiple layered toolbox. You can be Steve Taylor with the perfect foil. You can do the Danielson thing. You can do like, how do you decide what you're doing? Or do you just not decide? You just kind of have a roulette wheel at home and uh, wherever it lands is what you're going to do. I just have to see if there's any, any money left in the bank account so I can make more <laughs> music. Or, right. yes. Lynn, um, you mentioned that you were neighbors with Mark and I kind of want to get back to that a little bit because he was, just, I mean, he should have been right up there with every other song. Right? We should be talking mm -hmm. about him alongside Leonard Cohen, in my opinion, you know, yeah. Bob yeah. Dylan and all those guys. And yet he's stuck in that same canyon or crevice or whatever that, that you guys ended up in. When you think about it from what you know about the industry and, and as an artist, what, what kind of counsel would you give to a young creative person now that's wanting to write songs like a Mark Hurd? but wants to actually have a career, like wants to actually do it for a living and not get stuck uh, in obscurity? Well, uh, well, well, that's a big question. <laughs> You're just full of big questions here, aren't you? That's my job. With, with that, no absolute answers. <laughs> well, uh, I would say run away from the Christian music industry if you really want to do that. I mean, you know, unless you're making worship music or something that's relevant to the church and the market, which is a perfectly good thing to do. And that's fine. You know, but if you're talking about, you're talking about someone like Mark Hurd, who, uh, unfortunately he just got caught. He got signed by Chris Christian, who brought him into a, a Christian, you know, music world and got tied up in contractually in every other way. And, um, and it's a shame because he, you know, he's a guy that, uh, really should have lived in a larger, much larger uh, scenario. His music should have been heard by many, many more people, you know. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it's tough to give advice to people. You know, uh, I sort of want to be a little jaded and a little negative to people, try to talk them out of it some, most of the time. Are you sure you really want to do this? Are you sure? But I think you have to really be sure. Right. Um, you can't just be think thinking, oh, it'd be nice to be an artist and, you know, write some songs or do whatever. I'll go to Lipscomb or Belmont, get a degree there maybe. And, you know, it's not that easy. You know, my dentist makes more money than the average rock star, you know, so it's not even a great profession to right. consider. There are a lot of other better jobs, you know, to take. So you have to do it because you love it, because you, your heart is in it. 
because you feel this is what you're supposed to do. And I, I don't think there's an instant answer for that. You right. know, I mean, people nowadays, you know, you don't need to go sign with a record label necessarily anymore right. to do it. Uh, it's not bound by the, uh, you know, I got to sign with a label because I can't afford to make a record any other way. But now you can make one at home. Right. You know, uh, and you can put it out yourself and you could, you, you know, you can work it yourself and you can do the social media and all that, which tons and tons of people have done and proven. And I think that prove that it works. And um, uh, the challenge is still finding the people that will lean in when you're singing and are interested. Yeah. In what you and that's it, isn't it? Yeah. And I think I, I think you just got to find the audience. Well, we got time for a couple of questions. Who's got a question from the audience here? Say your name and then your question. Uh, my name is Jim Becker and curious, the upcoming show at the Ryman, how much does that feel like a, a graduation of sorts that you've been on this project for years and it's culminating in this. So there's the relief of finishing and at the same time, the all right is what's next in all this. I mean, you'll stay friends obviously and everything, but how, how does this feel for the concert? Anybody? Um, well, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, our, our manager, is here, and he uh, he's he's he sent a uh, a design for a backstage pass. <laughs> he said something like, "You know, in case you ever want to use this again." <laughs> and I said, "I love your optimism." <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yes. Like the whole stack. We have a really good tour T-shirt that will debut at the Ryman, and uh, it says on the back, "Chicago Gavar Halcyon Days World Tour," and it's got one, one day show. on the left. <laughs> That's nice. So, you know, we've had such a, a good time doing this. I, you know, who knows? Maybe there would be another opportunity in the future, but I don't think any of us are planning on that right now. Chris Hauser, 
Can someone please tell the story of the longest sound check in live music <laughs> history? Uh, Huntsville, Alabama. The name of the place was the TikTok Cafe, right? Not tip top, TikTok. Um, so we were uh, the professionals that we were. We showed up at the gig. Now I I can't remember if this place also was like a place that I used to play when I lived up in Woodstock, New York. There was a place we played in Wellsville, New York, called the Well. Had a dirt floor. I think this place also had a dirt floor. So we're we're in Alabama. We're playing a club that has a dirt floor. So, but we have a contract from you know one of the top booking agencies in the country and doggone it, we're gonna go by that contract. The contract says the show starts at eight o'clock. So we hit the stage at eight. We played a flaming show. We didn't pull any punches. We, we flamed it and, and hard. So we get off the stage, uh, you know, 90 minutes later, having played the entire show, maybe even conjured up our own, um, encore, encore. <laughs> can't, can't, can't remember, but, uh, the guy that owned the club said, uh, um, well, y'all, that was hell of a sound check. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sound check. What do you mean the sound check? That, that was the show. He said, no, not around here. People don't show up till at least 11 o'clock. So that was your sound check. So that, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the oh longest sound gosh. check. So, but here's why that night turned out to be important. This was sort of early on for us. We were just starting to sort of get around 200, 250 mile radius of Nashville. So we were so sort of gobsmacked by the idea that <laughs> we just played our, we just played our show that when we went back on, the, there was a different attitude of somehow it had sort of set us free. And when we got back, we played with a looseness. Lynn and I started really going off script in terms of the guitars. And that, to me, that was the night, from a guitar player's perspective, that was the night that we were, that we were born. Rose, how did you come up with the name Chagall Guevara? We were in California, you know, I'm sleeping on the floor at Steve's house on a blow-up mattress that wouldn't hold air. All kinds of things were floating through our conversations at that point, but uh, hey, you know, what about, a, what about a band name? In my recollection, I sort of attribute the Chagall part of the equation to Steve's wife, Deb, who was a, a fan of Mark Chagall's. I was too. We all we all were, but she was uh, really sort of 
very much alive with Chagall. They had coffee table books. And, and uh, so the name was an effort not so much to come up with a band name, but to come up with a combination of words that would somehow approach the approach of the band. What would be we be aspiring to musically? So there was something in the religious art of Marc Chagall that was really important to us. But then the Shea part, um, I know it, I, I had just finished a, a biography of Shea. There was a, was a film that had, that had come out. I like Shea. And I didn't care if he was a dang communist or not. Um, but anyway, that there was a, there was a certain, um, I think there was something at play in us that wanted to, to sort of punch back culturally. It's sort of a gross overestimation to say that we consider ourselves revolutionaries, but, um, we, wanted to go our own way and we wanted to sort of leave as he, as he did leave some things by the wayside and and move out under our own uh sense of future and so we put the two names together as a, a placeholder until we came up with a with a real name the problem was the name was so outlandish that everything else felt like like oatmeal <laughs> com com compared to it, you know? It was just, uh, you know, we've regretted it ever since, but we've <laughs> not been able to get, a to get around it. And, you know, I know when we were when we first started talking about doing Halcyon Days and the other things we've done in the last year, I, I, my first thought was, Great. Now's our chance to change the band name. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. I know uh, we, we're out of time here. Um, but, man, this has been a whole lot of fun. Everybody have a good time? Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank Steve, Lynn, Dave, Mike, our studio guests, and Nick Beret for setting this whole thing up. I also want to thank John Mark Painter for joining forces with the band on bass, backing vocals, and extra soul. The departure of Wade Janes was unfortunate to be sure, but Painter is an absolute treasure and his addition to this group is explosive. From all of us, thanks John. Before we wrap this up, I wanted to get some feedback from someone who was at the show and might have been looking forward to it more than just about anyone else. Elias Koblenz is one or two steps beyond what we might call a super fan. At the Ryman show, Dave Perkins stopped the concert for a few minutes to call Elias out thank him for his support, and assure everyone there that none of this would likely have happened if not for his long, long, persistent support and, well, nagging. As a token of his appreciation, he gave Elias the famous straw cowboy hat that has been his trademark headwear throughout the first run of Chagall Guevara. We lobbied MCA uh, to get away, and uh, they wouldn't let us go, and we had no choice uh, Really, we couldn't move on. All we could do was uh, fade into shadows. But as we disappeared, there was one voice that persisted on calling the band back into the light. And he's persisted for three decades. That should all go far. Uber fan is uh, Elias Copeland. Right down here in the front. 
lot of you know what this is. This, this uh, hat was, uh, well, I, I bought this at Texas Hatters in Austin when I was playing with Jerry Jeff Walker and put a lot of sweat equity into it and then revived it out in Chagall Pomar to provide a nice counterpoint to Lynn and Steve, who had tremendous fashion height. And uh, so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to give the working man a point of entry into our band music. So I, I uh, started wearing this hat, and it, it's in a lot of videos, a lot of photos. Check out, uh, Elias, I'm passing this little piece of memorabilia along to you. When you're on the track in the back for you, wear it with all the thanks and The day after the reunion show, I got to chat with Elias at the party for the Kickstarter backers where I heard a bit more of his backstory. It turns out that he was just six years old the first time he saw Chagall perform at Cornerstone 91. That show changed his life. I can relate. He began writing letters to Steve, who wrote back. He got to meet him a couple times as a kid, then as a teen. He was there when we talked Steve into coming out of retirement to play at Cornerstone 03. Elias became an avid collector of Chagall VHS recordings, and then when social media took hold, he either joined or started several fan groups. He eventually got to know the other guys in the band, always asking them about the legendary unfinished songs, when they might play together, and how he might help. Finally, when the pieces started to come together, Elias was there and ready to help for real. He helps manage the Chagall Facebook page, helped to promote the Kickstarter campaign, and helped find and digitize some of the archival footage used in the campaign. So, yeah, he deserved that hat. I asked him how the show and the Halcyon Days project lived up to a lifetime of expectation. Here's what he had to say. You know, what Chagall Guevara has meant to me over the years has evolved as I have evolved. At first, it was just all about the music, because I was really young when I got into them. And then as I got older and I started to dig into what their lyrics were saying, man, they were saying some stuff politically that was just the polar opposite of what I had been taught growing up, and that opened the door of intellectual curiosity for me. And they were the only secular band I was allowed to listen to growing up, so they were the only band I could introduce my friends to and not be completely embarrassed about. And then I went through my own personal crisis of faith and came out on the other side as a non-believer and they served as the connective tissue to where I had been and where I was going. And for all that, I've been forever grateful to them. And they're just a badass rock and roll band. So when something touches you in that many ways for that long, how could you not want to keep the flame going, right? And then as far as their performances last weekend, Man, they exceeded my expectations. I was just blown away by how great they sounded, and the entire weekend left me feeling so satisfied on a multitude of levels. It was great to see fans get a chance to tell this band how much they had meant to them over the last three decades, to see them get that little sliver of respect they deserved long ago, to reconnect with my fellow Guevarians. But man, for me, the biggest takeaway is that now that the Chagall Guevara story appears to be like fading to black, the ending doesn't suck. It's gone from having this bitter, painful conclusion to this beautiful redemption story where there is recompense and rejuvenation and triumph and joy after tragedy. And these guys, for the rest of their lives, are going to know that Chagall Guevara did, in fact, make an impact in people's lives. And to me, that means everything. 
Thanks, Elias. And on behalf of all of us fans, thank you for channeling our love and passion for this music and these guys so well. You've been like a lightning rod, and it shows. As I pull out my soapbox to wrap this up, I first want to assure you that the show at the Ryman was, without a doubt, one of the absolute highlights of my entire career and life in this community. The band was great. Not perfect, no. They even chose to stop a song or two and start it again just to get it right. But I'll tell you what, they were playing real, live, rock and roll music with no auto-tune and no tracks and it was very, very good. Though the room wasn't quite sold out, it was full enough to be rocking pretty hard. I've been to a lot of shows at the Ryman, and Chagall was right up there with the best of them. Chagall Guevara was a textbook example, maybe even a cautionary tale, of swinging for the fences, a band that deserved more attention than they ever got, and flamed out fast for lack of fuel. But I also want to applaud over the Rhine, who opened the evening with a simple acoustic set. Karen Berquist and Linford Detweiler have been making music for more than 30 years as well, and with a few exceptions have been doing it as independent artists. Their under-the-radar journey offers a very different but very clear definition of success. I hope some of you will join me at their homegrown Nowhere Else Festival outside of Cincinnati this Labor Day weekend. So, I'm thinking about this idea of Halcyon Days, the ironic title of the new Chagall album, and the old cliche about the good old days. When we think of halcyon days, we're talking about days gone by that seem better than the present. And I cannot even describe how special it was to meet so many listeners of this show and the old school fans of the first iteration of True Tunes who had not yet even heard that we were back at the table that we set up at the Ryman. I was floored by the excitement, the stories, the hugs and handshakes, and the number of times people said that True Tunes had changed their life or that they missed those days and how that night together at the Ryman felt like a slice of the good old days. And I got a similar response at the Audio Feed Festival. So first, sincerely, thank you. It means so much to me and Bruce to know that you're out there listening and that this is important to you. Music, especially music by Steve Taylor and Over the Rhine, for instance, has had that kind of life-changing impact on us. It still does. All I ever wanted to do is to extend the opportunity for more people to experience this stuff together. But here's the thing, halcyon days are often lies, or at least distortions. Yes, these days, the times in which we currently live are a challenge. There is a lot wrong right now, but there was a lot wrong back then too. I'm realizing now that some of the goodness of the good old days, for me, is just because I was blind to so much more. I was unaware, I was ignorant, sometimes willfully, and I tend to only remember the highlights. And with the benefit of hindsight, I can now see that what really makes the good old days truly good was not the comfort, the ease, or even the great concerts, but the way the hard times, challenges, and failures broke me, humbled me, and shaped me to be more teachable, more faithful, and more eager to listen and love my neighbor. It may be, in fact, that the best parts of our past were the hard parts. So what might this mean for us today? What band should I be helping get back together? Who should I be having over to the house to sing some songs? And what should I be doing to introduce the next group of unknown legends to the audience they need? And how can I lead that audience to the voices they need to help them make sense of the madness? I think you see where I'm going. Almost 40 years ago, I saw artists like the 77s and Steve Taylor and decided I needed to do something about their obscurity. I wasn't satisfied with one event per year. 
but I failed, by and large. That version of True Tunes is gone. 30 years ago, a different crop of artists emerged. Maybe having learned a few lessons from seeing where people like Steve Taylor, Mark Hurd, and Dave Perkins had gotten stuck, and over the Rhine, Vigilantes of Love, and others plowed some new fields. And now, here we are. It's less expensive than ever for artists to make albums, and they can keep almost all of the revenue from sales, but it's almost impossible for them to find an audience. So, whether you were with us in Chagall Guevara the first time around, or are new to this whole thing, here we are, stuck in the middle with you. I can't think of anywhere I'd rather be. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. going to do it for this episode of the true tunes podcast thanks to our patreon members especially all the new members like matt rex john joel jeff and margaret we're sending a special uncut version of my conversation with chagall as well as a video of the whole session to our patreon crowd so you all be watching for that i do hope to see you at over the rhine's nowhere else festival this labor day weekend definitely check that out at nowhereelsefestival.com and get your tickets soon Find the show notes page for a list of all the music on this show, some video links and contact info, and please leave us a review and rating at Apple. Sign up for the email list, follow and listen to our weekly Spotify mix, and tell your friends about the show. Thanks as always to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our podcast theme, and a special thank you to Charlie Peacock for production music for this episode. Producers and songwriters should definitely check out his new Elements package of sounds and loops. It's amazing. This podcast was written and produced by me, JJT, with co-production editing and sound design by Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions. The contents of this program are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you not to feed the monkey. He is not your friend. Peace. This is a Mr. T adventure story. You can follow Mr. T and his gymnastic team friends, Miss Bisbee, Robin, Jeff, Woody, Garcia, Kim, and Spike in your very own book. It's easy. Read along. When you hear this tone, Mr. Louis Weaver, let's get into it. It means turn the page.